You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by General David Petraeus, a retired four-star general who spent over 37 years as an Army officer. General Petraeus served as Commanding General Multinational Force Iraq from February 2007 to September 2008. In this role, he saw, oversaw all coalition forces in Iraq. Then he served as Commander U.S. Central Command from October 2008 to June 2010, and later as Commander of the International Security Assistance Force and Commander U.S. Forces Afghanistan from July 2010 to July 2011. It was then that President Obama nominated him to become the next director of the Central Intelligence Agency, where he served from September 2011 until November 2012. Thank you, General Petraeus, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks. So I'd like to jump right in and ask a question that we've asked in one way or another to people who have moved from another career into an intelligence. And you spent the majority of your military career as an infantry officer or as an airborne infantry officer. And you're not the first former soldier to become the director of CIA, and you weren't the last. You know, General Hayden came in um, before you, uh, and you certainly will not be the last one to do this. But how difficult was a transition from a military leadership position to a leadership position within the intelligence field? And, that, and I understand that the back, back upon this question is that you need to work with military intelligence and IC elements during your time as a theater commander. But how steep was the learning curve on things like strategic intelligence and things beyond military forces? I think it was probably a little less steep because in the three four-star positions that you mentioned, I'd had a CIA briefer uh, the entire time. I was very heavily engaged in the development of the national intelligence estimates for Iraq and Afghanistan and indeed anything that had to do with Central Command, uh, which is a region, of course, from Egypt in the west to Pakistan in the east, Kazakhstan in the north to Yemen in the waters off Somalia in the south. We were very proud that we had 90% of the world's problems at that particular time. And in previous assignments, before starting the what ended up being a total of four years, three different assignments in Iraq, the year in Afghanistan, the 19 months in Central Command, uh, I'd served for a year in Bosnia, where I was not only the operations chief for the NATO Stabilization Force, 
uh, but was also the deputy commander of a clandestine joint task force that was engaged in the war criminal hunt and then also did, uh, in fact, the first counterterrorism operations in the wake of 9-11 and continued those throughout the course of that particular year, again, as the deputy commander of a particular unit. This is a special operations task force that worked very, very closely with uh, the CIA station chief and stationed there, uh, had all of the different elements of the intelligence world engaged. It was really, as we used to say at that time, the only war we had, Mm -hmm. uh, and it had the largest deployment of special mission units, not just special operations, but actually special mission units, and all of the so-called enablers to those and ties even into the uh, domestic law enforcement uh, with FBI and, and other elements like that. That was a great uh, learning experience for a year doing targeted operations, uh, again, first in the war criminal business, and we got, I think, more war criminals that year than we'd gotten in the entire uh, period since the end of the Civil War in Bosnia. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, the counterterrorist operations where uh, we shut down over a period of time for Uh, non-government organizations Mm -hmm. helped put behind bars the head of the Benevolence International uh, Organization uh, and with what we found out there and and a variety of other uh, activities. Beyond that, I'd been the uh, executive officer, sort of the internal chief of staff for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for two years and sat in each morning when he was briefed by his briefer and, and so forth. And that was the entire world, needless to say. Right. So I'd had a pretty good uh, understanding of what uh, the CIA did. I was a huge consumer of the finished intelligence. Right. What I needed to learn was what was the process. Uh, how did we actually steal secrets? <laughs> how did we recruit um, uh, agents, um, sources? Uh, and then how was it all brought together? Although we'd even done this in Iraq. We had a huge intelligence fusion effort. Uh, in Iraq, every single one of the divisions, and then the same thing in Afghanistan, uh, every one of the division-level headquarters in Iraq had its own fusion cell with all of the members of uh, the intelligence world in there, not just the military, but also, uh, again, the CIA and others. Uh, And we also built our own, uh, basically, cloud uh, out there because we had so much data that we could not ship it back in the pipes that were available to NSA or CIA, and so we ended up having to do all of the fusion work out there uh, and even brought the uh, software applications engineers out to uh, to Iraq and to Baghdad, and it's amazing how much work you can get done if, you know, you yeah. work seven days a week right. and there's nothing to do at night and you can't drink. <laughs> right, general so, order number one is it, That's right. So, it was, uh, so again, I'd had a reasonably good uh, preparation for this, uh, and then knowing... You know, I'd had a couple of months, if you will, from uh, the end, not quite two months at the Mm -hmm. end of the time uh, when I came home, then obviously had to go through all the out processing, retirement process, move, a whole bunch of other tasks. Uh, But during that time was also spooling up on a near daily basis out at the agency leading up to the actual swearing in. Right. I want to, because you're talking about this dynamic of of pre and post 9-11, how how the militarization of intelligence that took place after 9-11 and vice versa, the role of the military evolving to conduct what used to be considered traditional intelligence functions, did this help your transition? Did you see a marked transition 
after 9-11 to the militarization of intelligence and vice versa? Well, I don't know, first of all, that I'd buy the term the militarization <laughs> okay. of intelligence. Um, I think a more accurate description of what happened after 9-11 was that the pipes that used to, the stovepipes, really, that used to uh, emanate from where the sources of intelligence, of information, uh, went back generally in stovepipes uh, and in some cases weren't shared. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of sensitivity, and this was actually in the military as well. Uh, a great example of this was there I was deployed for several months by the time 9-11 attacks took place uh, in Bosnia. Uh, I mentioned this this hat that I had, a U.S.-only hat, uh, with a special mission unit task force forward, and we would not even share with the, the other special operators. So this was what was called Black Sof. Mm. Uh, we wouldn't share it with the White Sof, the Green Berets, uh, and much less with conventional forces. And after 9-11 took place, in fact, I was among them, the, our commander and, and I just put down an edict that everybody's coming in here. I mean, this is literally a fenced-off compound. They were not even allowed in the inside the right. fence line. And we said, that's nonsense. Uh, everybody is going to have to engage in this, and we're going to bring the conventional forces much more into this. We're going to bring the white soft into it. In fact, we actually started using white soft for some of the missions that we had, albeit a uh, special units of white soft that are almost what you call gray soft, uh, the so-called commanders in extremis force that exist in many of the different combatant commands. So, again, I think the big... Uh, change that was brought about by 9-11 was an enormous amount of examination of where we were failing to share information, right. uh, first of all within uh, the military, then within the intelligence community, uh, and then between the intelligence community and law enforcement. Right. And exactly. this has always been a challenge because there are laws, again, uh, and again, what law enforcement can share with CIA has to have certain fields stripped out. What CIA can share it has to have certain sources and uh, methods stripped out. And we got much, much better at that. And then over time, obviously, the IT improvements, the, the size of the pipes that we could push information through expanded dramatically. Connectivity has taken huge leaps forward. And that's enabled a much, much greater amount of sharing. Now the challenge, uh, actually, is the amount of data that we have. Right. Big data has become overwhelmingly big. Uh, it's publicly known that the CIA actually couldn't build its own cloud architecture fast enough, so we contracted out with Amazon Web Services with enormous safeguards and security measures and so forth. I mean, is that a new problem? And in, in the way I'm asking that is, yes, there's more data, but there's more processing capabilities to handle the data versus let's say in the 1960s where there was less data but they were doing it all human beings doing yeah, analysis sure there have been there have been advances without question and now we're getting to artificial intelligence right. and even at some point deep learning uh, where one stops and the other begins right. is a little murky to me but again this is very much ongoing and the CIA has actually been one of the early investors uh, it's publicly known that InQtel which mm -hmm. is a nonprofit independent CIA-funded, publicly acknowledged uh, venture capital firm headquartered in Arlington, but we created a platform for them in Silicon Valley when I was the director, uh, that their job is to identify startups that can help the agency solve problems that it has. And one of the early, it was the first million dollars 
in a firm called Palantir that's now valued at way over $10 billion, right. closer to $20 billion. Uh, these kinds of very powerful applications have been of huge uh, importance to the agency, and that process does continue very much. So from what I know about you, and I, I try to do as much research as I can before I have anybody here, and if I had to use one word, or I'll cheat and use a couple of words, to describe you beyond military officer, it would be educator, teacher, trainer. Uh, your life and career you seem to be always teaching those around you, and I, I, something that really stood out to me as an educator myself. In some cases, it would be your military subordinates, the entire national security establishment, by things like creating the Doctrine of the Counterinsurgency Manual, or today is now you teach in a variety of institutions of higher learning. Is this something that was ingrained in you when you were young, and did you bring this philosophy with you to CIA? Uh, I think it was ingrained when I was a kid. I was very fortunate to have parents that were tremendous, voracious readers. Um, we would always have two vacations each summer. One was to the beach, which I loved. The other, we would have to once again retrace uh, Paul Revere's ride <laughs> and put a you know, walk around Walden Palm and put another stone on Thoreau's grave and put a you know a rose on Louisa May Alcott's uh, headstone and go to the rude bridge that arched the flood and read the poem again and uh, and on and on and mm -hmm. on and so. Uh, I wanted to just hang out at the motel pool all day, and I was sort of dragged along in these. But as I look back on it, it was wonderful. And again, their thirst for reading, the books that my mother made me read during the summer, uh, you know, between each academic year and all the rest of that, and the support that they provided intellectually was hugely important. And it has continued to this day. I taught, actually, you know, I had the academic side to me. I was privilege to go to Princeton really to get a master's degree to teach at West Point and then I figured out a way to get a PhD uh, in that two-year period although I uh, to get through all the coursework and the general exams and the oral and prospectus uh, and then finished it while I was teaching there uh, and I do in fact now teach at the Honors College of the City University of New York each week uh, I spend a week per semester at the University of Southern California where I'm a Judge Whitney professor and then I'm a senior fellow at Harvard as well and have a project going there all the time also. We're now into the third project uh, since I left government. Um, I enjoy it very much. Uh, I find that you never learn as much as when you teach or even just lead a seminar. Uh, it's a joy. Um, we had very formal processes in every unit that I was privileged to command in the military, and indeed we did take that to the CIA, we created a position called the learning officer position. Uh, we shored up the lessons learned process that we had there, capturing lessons, disseminating them, and recognizing the lesson is actually not learned when it's identified. It's learned when it is actually incorporated in the, the mission, the campaign right. plan, the SOPs, the policies, procedures that the organization follows. And so... I saw that as very, very important. We actually inst instituted a, a program called the uh, Director's uh, Scholars Program, uh, where it, it, particularly on the operations side, the analysts generally were able to get away or came to the agency with considerable uh, academic background. The operators, on the other hand, f we found it very difficult because we were always allocating shortages, as they say. We never really had enough mm -hmm. Uh, of them. In fact, one of the big initiatives during the time I was a director was, in fact, to do an inventory of every single member of the National Clandestine Service, the so-called members now of the Director of Operations, 
to determine where they were, uh, what they were doing, and then to make sure we were allocating them properly. You know, did we still need 50 or so of them right. in Paris when we had none out somewhere yeah. else? And the answer, of course, was no. Um, so we worked through that process. And again, we, we did indeed try to break some of them free, not just for the traditional language courses or some other shorter courses, uh, but also to get them again to Harvard in particular, where we had a one-year fellowship and, and still do have that. In fact, I talk to them every time I'm up there now as a, as a senior fellow at Harvard. Um, beyond that, I actually instituted a, a policy where every time the station chiefs were brought back by the division chief of a particular region, uh, and every time the the uh, future station chiefs were gathered for what the military would call a pre-command course, it's really the pre-station chief course, uh, that I would talk and spend time with them. And it was usually, I would try to spend uh, 75 to 90 minutes with each of them. And I would go through each of the classes, and I would go through, here's what's on the mind of your director right now for no more than 10 to 15 mm -hmm. minutes. But they they had a right to know what the director was thinking about, what he's concerned about, of, of a general nature. And then every single one of them had to give me the one or two big, big items that I needed to know about that they might think I didn't know about, about their particular country, the country or, or actually functional area mm -hmm. for which they were going to be a station chief. Uh, and I found those very, very illuminating. The cross-fertilization right. that that forced was actually very useful for the division chiefs. Uh, and, and again, it was just a great process. And uh, the same with the future station chiefs. Uh, I would literally walk my way around the room. Everybody had to ask a question. It wasn't optional. Uh, and it was to try to get at the kinds of issues that uh, they might be grappling with internally as they're preparing for this leadership position, some right. of them for the first time. Uh, and what, would, what was my thinking on that? Well, how do the, the concept in the military of strategic corporal is something that you've talked about in the past, the idea that information and, and knowledge needs to be disseminated downward so that people on the ground, the ones that are actually making the real impact can have the tools they need to succeed. Is this something going to be applied to intelligence as well? Very to much the, so, sure, yeah. without question. Uh, the idea of the strategic corporal is really that at the very small unit level, this is particularly true in counterinsurgency, uh, that a sergeant, a young lieutenant, um, even a somewhat more senior sergeant or company commander, captain, uh, can take a tactical action that can have strategic consequences. Uh, and sometimes these can be very positive, but frankly, probably more often than not, they are very negative. Mm -hmm. So the individual that, for example, and this happened when I was the commander of the surge in Iraq, uh, a soldier decides to use some pages out of the Koran for uh, marksmanship practice, right. you know, bad idea. Uh, and, you know, really just didn't appreciate how horrible that was culturally. Uh, and that one ended up with uh, me apologizing to the prime minister of Iraq and President Bush actually calling him at my request uh, to do the same thing and publicizing that, frankly, as well. So that when we made those kinds of mistakes, uh, that we immediately took appropriate action and then corrective action and whatever you could do to mitigate to reduce the risk of those kinds of uh, incidents happening again. So to prevent that, the strategic corporal, the, again, the young leader at a very small unit level who nonetheless can uh, 
can take an action that has such strategic far-reaching consequences has to understand the intent of the commander and has to be able to operationalize the you know the big ideas that I have at the very top level that we will secure the people by living with the people we must be seen to secure and serve them that we're going to promote reconciliation by the way we're also going to kill very senior irreconcilables or capture them uh, at a, an even higher tempo that we are going to uh, unify the civil and military activities that we have that we're going to rehabilitate detainees before we release and a whole host of initiatives that were the the surge of ideas which was far more important than the surge of forces we only added 25,000 forces to an existing 135 to 140,000 that would not have predicted driving violence down by some 85 or more percent which is what we did in the course of the 18 months or so of the surge Uh, and what really changed was the strategy the overall and then the approach and and it was completely 180 degrees different instead of consolidating on big bases and handing off to the Iraqis as fast as we could we stopped handing off, actually reversed some of that, and went back into the neighborhoods, as an example, in just the divisional area alone responsible for Baghdad, created 77 additional locations where our forces were deployed. And we had to fight for a lot of these, and we put them right on the sectarian fault lines where the fighting, the, the violence was the highest. In fact, to try to stop this cycle of violence that had been getting worse and worse and worse, Uh, for almost an entire year by the time the surge started in early February 2007. Well, counterinsurgency almost demands that you have educated, lower-level NCOs, Very much so, yep. This is a problem in Vietnam, which you you know a whole lot about. What what happens when you get your education, you get your on-the-job training, you spent your year in Iraq or Afghanistan, and then it's time to redeploy? You finally figured out how to do your job. You finally figured out all the stuff you need to know to do, and then a whole other unit comes in. Obviously, we can't overextend our forces. We can't overextend our intelligence personnel either. When they finally get their feet under them in a country overseas, whether they're in a denied area or somewhere like Iraq or Afghanistan, how do you keep that institutional knowledge on the field sure. and not back here in Washington? Granted, back here you can train other people, but sure. you, want, you want the training to be there. Yeah. Well, what we did was, in fact, Prior to my going back to Iraq for the third time to command the surge, I'd had a tour there as a two-star divisional commander for the fight to Baghdad in the first year uh, in Iraq up in Mosul and Nainua as the commander of the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, Came back very quickly after that within a couple of months to do an assessment of the Iraqi security forces, which had performed very poorly uh, in some very tough situations in early 2004, except in the area where we had been deployed, where they did relatively credibly uh and then after bringing the recommendations back was told okay great you're come out of division command you're going back over to as a three-star uh ended up staying some 15 and a half months or so that time so i had nearly two and a half years on the ground and then i spent 15 and a half months at fort leavenworth as a commander of the combined arms center which is responsible for something like 16 different schools and centers across the u.s army Uh, and uh, had control of doctrine, had control of all the leader development courses for the commissioned warrant and and non-commissioned officers of the U.S. Army, controlled the scenarios for the combat training centers where our units go through their paces Mm -hmm. before deploying, and basically controlled every aspect of what's called the road to deployment, 
from the very first seminar that is given, which is provided by the Battle Command Training Program, which works for the commander of the Combined Arms Center, uh, to the rehearsal exercise, either conducted by a unit in the Mojave Desert uh, or central Louisiana, right. or for the very high-level headquarters by this very same Battle Command Training Program in, in a simulation exercise uh, for the course of a, a week to two weeks. Um, and so every step of that we overhauled. Uh, and then we overhauled all of the development training. So the Command and General Staff College, I was also the commandant of that. I had five or six different hats. Uh, and, you know, we first we changed the doctrine. We did the counterinsurgency field manual. We did the human intelligence collection operations field manual, which is the detainee operations one, a, a number of others embedded that in the training the uh, development courses for again everyone from sergeants through uh, the majors and beyond uh, the pre-command course we owned at Fort Leavenworth as well the School of Advanced Military Studies so this is an extraordinary right. opportunity we called it the engine of change for our army uh, and you had a lot of levers and I had a tremendous team to help me move those levers I, I, uh, I smiled when army. you talked about the overhaul I, I went to it through NTC in the army and JRTC before I got deployed to Bosnia and I can I, I asked this question because it took a good two months in Bosnia before I figured out what we were doing and I think that maybe this is something we can't quite afford to do oh we can afford to do it yeah. and we did do it I mean we in for the training for Iraq we actually had native Iraqi speakers, now American citizens, yeah. but in the hundreds out in the Mojave Desert at the National Training Center for that exercise. We created villages all over the desert floor. We created improvised explosive devices that would actually blow up with Hollywood effects. We had suicide bombers. Mm -hmm. We had imams. We had host nation security forces. We had local councils. Uh, everything that you would find actually out on the battlefield, if you will, or in the, the environment. Uh, in Iraq, we recreated, and then we had a different scenario for Afghanistan, much yeah. more up into the hills and the mountains and so on, because the terrain is so very, very different, and indeed the situation is very different right. as well. But tried to bring everything into this that we possibly could, even created our own uh, basically cell phone system, hmm. because it's illegal to do anything to the cell phone system that's commercial. Right. So we had to, because for some of our intelligence tools and some of our other capabilities to employ them, you couldn't do that again to uh, Verizon or Mobile right. or something like that. You had to have your own system and a lot of waivers uh, to do that. So that's how we sought to really, again, change everything. Uh, and we did. Um, now, I'm not saying this hadn't begun prior to me being there, but this was a culminating period very much so. And certainly that counterinsurgency field in the manual started with me. Uh, and indeed, I dragooned one of my West Point classmates who had a Ph.D. in history teaching up at the Army War College uh, to be the editor-in-chief of that. But I was the pub, maybe I was the editor-in-chief and he was the editor. I don't know what it was, but we had a very, very good collaboration and pushed that all the way through. Uh, and again, controlled so much of the preparation of individuals uh, leaders and units and that helped a great deal the other is that of course by the time the surge came many of the leaders on the ground had two tours already in Iraq as I did over two tours um, at the very least almost all of them had one tour mm -hmm. so they understood that beyond that we took a number of steps to try to enable continuity uh, there was a pre-deployment site survey. They'd actually go out to Iraq, spend a week on the ground with the unit they're going to replace. Mm. 
we'd deploy the intelligence and operations and some other officers a month in advance so they'd do overlap right. uh, until their unit arrived. Uh, we had civilian uh, uh, social uh, experts, if you will, uh, anthropologists and so forth, uh, that were that they would bridge that period. So they would actually stay for a good six months later. Mm-hmm. We had an organization called the Asymmetric Warfare Group that was created with a lot of special operators, former special operators, uh, and they would actually go out with a unit uh, they deploy with it for the few, first few months, and then as the next unit's getting ready, they'd actually come back and embed with that unit and help them get ready for that specific area. Now, it wasn't always perfect, and ne- inevitably we might change the location on, and so forth, but the units were vastly more prepared. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, like the Marines, they always went back to the same province. In their, okay. their case, it was Anbar province. Uh, some other units, we tried to do the same wherever we could. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Changing gears a little bit, but keeping somewhat the same theme, we're now seven-plus years into the Obama administration. We're gearing up for another election. Uh, But we're still having debates about things like torture and enhanced interrogation in Guantanamo. Uh, despite it, President Obama's promise to close it as one of his campaign promises, it remains open. Uh, you've been very vocal and consistently spoken out against actions on prisoners, prisoners that go beyond the restrictions outlined in the Geneva Convention. You've also called for closing Guantanamo. And I'll even quote, you argued that, quote, the existence of Gitmo has indeed been used by the enemy against us. We have not been without missteps or mistakes in our activities since 9-11. And again, Guantanamo was a lingering reminder for the use of some in that regard. A couple questions based on this. Do you still come down on that side of the debate? Uh, is Guantanamo still an enemy propaganda victory? And, I'm, and you're, let, let, let me answer just that. answer yeah. that. Um, I, I still do believe Guantanamo should be closed, but I don't, I don't mean that it should you just flush all the prisoners out, the detainees. Right. Uh, I, there was always implied in that that there would be a viable alternative uh, and indeed I'd be willing to see this play out in our court system which mm-hmm. has actually gotten more uh, convictions of uh, individuals for terrorist action than have has the process in Guantanamo despite the extraordinary leadership uh, currently of a Brigadier General Mark Martins who I was privileged to have as my legal counsel uh, for uh, ne- nearly two years in Iraq uh, of the surge, and then he spent two years in Afghanistan, including my time as the commander there. Brilliant person's class at West Point, Rhodes Scholar, first there, Harvard Law Review with President Obama, and still uh, it has proven difficult to to n- negotiate this whole 
legal process right. uh, through the military court system. Um, so again, I I'm a little less, I guess, exercised about it now, just because we've been able to gradually reduce the right. population. There's much less clamoring from the region, therefore, uh, about their uh, young men who are there, who they will put into their own systems of incarceration. But you do see uh, ISIS using the orange jumpsuits as a bit of a kind well, of a in, symbolic no question of about that. And as, as, as I said, there are lingering. There, yeah. are, uh, there are indelible images uh, from Abu Ghraib, uh, from Guantanamo, and from some other uh, experiences, uh, which I think were in many cases mistakes, and so again, I, I would like to see Guantanamo closed. I would not give back Guantanamo. I would always want to have mm. a Guantanamo kind of option if we really needed it. But I think that our experience is telling us that we can very much put these individuals into a U.S. court system. The problem, of course, is that no state, no community wants a sizable number of these individuals right. uh, in a prison in their area. And that has been the challenge, needless to say, and it's understandable. With respect to the enhanced ter interrogation techniques or, or torture, um, I'm adamantly opposed to that, although I, I would make an exception for the so-called ticking time bomb scenario mm -hmm. that I want to come to. And I also want to note that, as I did publicly state in my confirmation hearing for director of the CIA, we need to remember the context in which these actions right. were taken. And I am one who wants to see the rearview mirrors taken off, having learned what we have, very much so, uh, and that includes taking to heart what is in the Senate report, uh, this, the uh, study that was done on this that, that has been not without controversy. But again, my view is that what we have gotten from this is generally, if, if it was meaningful, and that's very debatable, frankly, and it is be debated, uh, was not worth the, the price we paid uh, in terms of our image and in terms of, again, these uh, indelible images uh, and memories that are used against us uh, on a daily basis by extremists who wish us ill. And that is the, the challenge with this particular issue. Now, having said that, again, there was a sense of a strategic ticking time bomb right. at the time that this was done. I understand that I was part of this, in a sense, not... Uh, detainee treatment, but, you know, I was engaged with a special mission unit in the wake of 9-11 in conducting counterterrorism operations, and I can tell you there was a sense of extraordinary strategic uh, fear that something else like 9-11 was coming down the pike, uh, and no one knew where it was going. The threat indicators were unbelievable. Right. When the spigot of inf information was turned on in the wake of 9-11, uh, even in Bosnia, we were having twice a day having to have intelligence fusion meetings at the general officer level just to try to come to grips with everything that was coming in and determining. Because Bosnia, it turned out, was one of the conduits right. from Pakistan uh, into the underbelly of Europe, into the Schengen zone, and then they disappeared. Right, as it uh, still is. I mean, right now it's even emerged as even a bigger problem than perhaps it was then. Yeah. There are former Mujahideen yeah. there. There are, there are organizations that have over time facilitated the movement of individuals in there. The non-governmental organizations against which we conducted operations uh, were carrying out some of these activities. Uh, Al-Harimain, uh, even the Red Crescent of mm -hmm. all things, uh, the Benevolence International Foundation, and so forth. 
Um, these were conducting reasonable uh, services for the people uh, with the bulk of their funds, but there was a portion that was going to, to enable individuals to come through Bosnia and into, a, mm -hmm. into Europe uh, and to facilitate their, their, their travels. So you recently wrote a op-ed in the Washington Post, which I want to ask you about, and without venturing too far into politics, because we try to stay apolitical here. So do I. Yeah, it seems as though your argument in the article is consistent with what you've been saying here, the idea that some of the mistakes we've made in the past, we don't want to repeat. We don't want to treat all Muslims as though they're the enemy, because you know, you had to work hand-in-hand hand with the Iraqi security our, force. Our, and the the Afghan successes force. that yeah. we have had in, in almost every case— not every single one, but in many of the areas that we saw progress during periods like the surge in Iraq or even the surge in Afghanistan um, or a number of the individual successes, mm -hmm. uh, in many of those cases, uh, there were Muslim partners. Uh, in some of the cases, there were substantial communities of Muslim partners. Again, what we were able to do during the surge in Iraq, of course, was to bring the Sunni Arab community back into the fabric of society of Iraq uh, and to get them to turn against al-Qaeda and the associated insurgent movements that had uh, brought such violence uh, on Iraq and given a reason for the Shia militia also to, to rise and to, to combat them. So in every case, uh, there have been Muslim partners. It's crucial that we continue to have Islamic countries help fight against Islamic extremism. This is a bigger threat within the Islamic civilization, right. actually. So this is a clash within a civilization more than it is a clash between civilizations, as much as the Islamic extremists, ISIS, al-Qaeda, and all of their affiliates uh, would like to make it between their world and the Christian world or the Jewish world or any other right. uh, worlds of any other faiths. In truth, vastly more Muslims are being killed by Islamic extremists uh, than are those of other faiths. So before you, you have to go, let me let me turn to uh, your dissertation, which I, because I'm a, a bit of a geek, I, I, I poured over it. Uh, so it was fascinating. Um, it, it was written almost 30 years ago uh, when you were probably 10 years old. Um, and it's about Vietnam. It's actually titled The American Military and the Lessons of Vietnam, a Study of Military Influence and the Use of Force in the Post-Vietnam Era. Um, Vietnam has always fascinated me. I'm not a child of the Vietnam era. My, my father was too old to have fought in Vietnam, and I was too young to remember any of it. Um, it. Can we think Vietnam is still as important as an influence for military leaders and policymakers as it was with your generation? Are the lieutenant colonels and colonels today going through the general staff college and you know, looking at this? Is, as you talk about in the dissertation, has the half-life of the Vietnam legacy gone? Has it expired at this point? I don't know that the half-life is completely expired, but I think there are other half-lives that are much more instructive and much more influential. Mm -hmm. And, of course, those are the half-lives of the lessons of Iraq and of Afghanistan and of the greater war against uh, Islamic extremism uh, and so forth. Um, first of all, let me just back up and yeah. say for any listener who who is ever thinking about a dissertation, the key to a dissertation, in my view, should be that it provides intellectual capital for you to draw on in the future yeah. in your professional career. And so I sought to have a dissertation that would allow me to go back and look at the character of military advice on the use of force, or most the military's most 
important task when it comes to it, but one that's frankly exercised by very, very few people in uniform. It is literally the province of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs as a senior military officer, but arguably even more importantly, the theater commander right. of uh, the location, such as the commander in Iraq or the commander in Afghanistan. Uh, and obviously I was privileged to hold both those positions and to be the boss of both of those when I was the commander of Central Command, where in all honesty, even though I was their boss, their influence, their advice was more important than mine, although I did certainly chime in. Um, so certainly what we have distilled from Iraq and Afghanistan, I think, is, is far more important. And indeed, we have a task now that is, I think, even more complicated than that of the post-Vietnam generation, in part because the post-Vietnam generation immediately, the, the, the first decades of my service, we immediately refocused. It was so convenient. We had the NATO-Warsaw Pact face-off. We had another war to get ready for. We like this one much better because it's, you know, tank on tank. Right. It's, uh, it's what we do. Uh, in some ways, it was almost the perfect of all situa- most perfect of all situations. You have a big threat. You have big forces. You have big exercises. There's plenty of opportunities for large commands and everything else. And yet you never fight. Right. Uh, and at least not directly. And, of course, thankfully. And, and um, interestingly, I, uh, I just delivered the eulogy for the, the principal mentor, the individual who really challenged me to expand my, my, my sights, extend my sights uh, when I was a captain, indeed, to go to graduate school rather than to, say, the Ranger Regiment. Um, and he was the final Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. And mm. the Cold War was won on his watch. I was actually one of his speechwriters as well uh, during the, the year of the immediate nuclear force agreement. Uh, and an extraordinary individual, General Jack Galvin. Um, but that was our focus. Interestingly, General Galvin was also the Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Southern Command. That was for all of uh, Central and South mm-hmm. America. And I served for him down there temporarily uh, as well as a special assistant, having been his aide when I was in an earlier assignment. And uh, that was a theater at war. In fact, we wrote a, an article together. It was over yeah. his name for parameters titled Uncomfortable Wars. And it talked about the fact, you know, here we are fixated on NATO-Warsaw Pact, to which he went back, uh, having been a three-star over there as a Corps commander first before going to, to uh central and south america but here in central and south america we were at war and i'll never forget going to the very first morning update which you know they covered the case of the counterinsurgency in el salvador mm-hmm. the counterinsurgency in, in colombia the counterinsurgency in peru yeah. and although they didn't talk about it because it was under uh, the cia presumably uh, what we were doing to support insurgents uh in in another case mm-hmm. in nicaragua um, and then shoring up countries that were all on the brink of some kind of uh, uh, potential uh, disaster. So it was an incredible experience to to ex- to go through that. I did Haiti later as the UN Force uh, Operations Chief, which was another tremendous experience to learn about a coalition. And that's where, the, by the way, we first lived with the people. Even though the U.S. would not allow their forces to go beyond Port-au-Prince and Cap Hessien, when we got all the coalition forces, I decided with the my, my support of my boss, obviously, uh, General Smoking Joe Kinzer, to, that we would we needed to be in all the communities and not just with small special forces teams, but with conventional forces, right. so we could push the special forces out even further, which is exactly what we did. So, 
again, to come back to this, I think that, again, it's the more recent experiences that actually tend to influence you. That's by nature, and that was another facet of the dissertation, is that what is it that is on your mind when you are in a crisis decision-making mode, uh, which is the situation that you're often in when there is dis discussion on the consideration for the use of force. Is that problematic if Iraq and Afghanistan are impacting both military and IC leaders moving forward and were suddenly thrust into a conventional war? Yeah, and this is the challenge. Uh, in fact, I was going to mention this earlier. This is the challenge that we do have now where it requires enormous flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to have the ability to fight a serious conventional uh, war uh, while we are also still engaged in these other kinds of irregular uh, wars mm -hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan, albeit now with host nation forces bearing the brunt of the uh, frontline combat action, which is c correct, and I agree with very strongly. I think that's how we should fight these, and we've established, built this armada of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance platforms, drones, manned and unmanned uh, aerial vehicles, and precision strike assets, and perhaps most importantly, the intelligence fusion that I spoke of earlier that is so vital uh, to understanding what it is you're seeing through the soda straw that is a predator feed right. or a, a reaper feed, um, and it takes the unblinking eye and months and months and months of analysis and study, again, to appreciate what it is that you're seeing. But once you get that, and then you get host nation forces that can force the enemy to, to fight, uh, you can do an enormous amount of damage to an enemy like the Islamic State while recognizing that it will in, in, inevitably revert to terrorist cell activities. In fact, we've seen that actually in Baghdad. Tragically, it was to be expected. And guerrilla kinds of insurgent uh, activity as well as their main units, essentially the con their conventional forces, uh, are chewed up over time by this just day after day after day of being hammered uh, by precision strikes. Well, General David Petraeus, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We really appreciate you. It was a privilege. Thanks. Thank Great you. to be with you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.